I'm Cody Commerce, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. Recently, I've been workshopping an idea. Basically, I don't believe there is such thing as an activity that is intrinsically meaningful. Sure, there are activities which people consistently endorse as meaningful pursuits, having kids, productive careers, learning a language, that sort of thing. And while there is an empirical fact about what sorts of activities members of our culture consider meaningful, this is not because these activities are meaningful in some fundamental way. Rather, what this empirical fact captures is that there is a limited set of readily available cultural stories about where meaning comes from. We tend to say that's where we, personally, derive meaning because that's the default story about meaning our culture prescribes. In fact, anything can be construed as meaningful, if you tell the story right. Most recently, I argued this point in a piece called Meaning is Post Hoc, where my claim was that we can't predict ahead of time what will be meaningful and what won't. This is because stories are always told retrospectively, and meaning depends entirely on the stories we tell. In particular, I'm skeptical of the traditional psychological narrative about meaning. Here is the set of activities that people tend to derive meaning from. Because whenever academics describe someone who is engaged in canonically meaningful activities, it sounds an awful lot like an abstract version of what a university professor does. I think that really underestimates the diversity of how people conceive of meaning and how devoted they are to finding it. Anthropology and sociology are full of examples along the lines of, here's some society we thought of as very different from elite Western society, and yet here they are spending all this time developing sophisticated theories about their place in the world. One of my favorites personally is The Dignity of Working Men by Michel Lamont. In short, I believe, at least at present, that there are no intrinsically meaningful activities because you can look back on any activity and come up with a way of construing it as meaningful. In this conversation, I had the privilege of honing this idea against one of the sharpest minds in the field. Paul Bloom is a professor of psychology at Toronto, previously based at Yale. Between these institutions and his online course, he has taught introductory psychology to millions of bright young students. This course laid the foundation for his latest book, Psych, the story of the human mind. Paul has thought a lot about the problem of meaning, both in his current book and his previous book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. We approach the topic in this conversation via entry points from his latest book, particularly Freud, and eventually I get around to pitching him my latest ideas. By no means do I immediately bring him around to my view, a lot of what we disagree on, I think, depends on what goes beyond the purview in psychology and what doesn't. Sometimes it's just hard to know where to draw those lines. A conversation with Paul is always enlightening, and at least from my own perspective, I think this conversation strikes a nice balance between drawing out some of the highlights of Paul's broad base of thinking with some of the problems that I've been directly grappling with in my own thoughts. Paul's latest book is Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. It's available now. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. That's the main feed for my content, where I publish both my weekly podcasts and a weekly essay. Subscribing to that is the single biggest way you can support the show. You can find it at themeaninglab.com. That's themeaninglab.com. And if you're listening on Spotify, please consider giving the Meaning Lab podcast a five-star rating. It takes four seconds. If you're on the Meaning Lab homepage, where it shows the logo and says follow or following, click the three dots. Then it'll say rate show. Select the fifth star and press submit. 
That's it. And it really does help a lot in growing the show's audience on the platform. You can also click the follow button to subscribe if you haven't already. Thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Paul Bloom. Paul, I don't know if you remember this, but in the first uh, the first conversation we had, I asked you about your productivity routine and you told me about your six-minute productivity regimen. Um, <laughs> of course I remember. People who listened to that made fun of, made fun of me afterwards. Uh, and you absolutely deserved it. But I want to do, I want to check back in on that. Uh, um, maybe describe it briefly for anyone who hasn't heard, heard, heard of this monstrosity before. And then I want to know what's, what's the status update on it. Is, is that still employed? Is that still work well for you? Is that still what things look like for you? I forget what I said when I, when I first talked to you. Um, but, and sometimes I work like a normal person. I have something to do and I just kind of sit and work at work on it until it's done, which I think is what normal people do. But often like this morning, I, um, I actually have in front of me, I have a little, a little, uh, um, pad, a little whiteboard and a, and a scented right on it. And I break up my work into six-minute chunks, sometimes seven-minute chunks, sometimes eight-minute chunks, on a strange day, maybe five-minute chunks. And so I have some reference letters to write. And that's kind of difficult, a little bit unpleasant. I write a reference letter for five minutes, and then I'm doing job applications. I look at job application files for five minutes, and then there's a talk I'm going to present, and I switch to that for five minutes. And I go back and forth to different things, and soon hours go by. And I find this keeps me fresh. Um, it's not for everybody. It, it's most certainly not for everybody. I know some people who say, oh, transitioning from one task to another takes an enormous amount of load. It's very difficult. But for me, my enemy is is getting bored. And so this just keeps me from getting bored. And also while I'm doing other things, if I work in this wet parallel way, I'm kind of simmering on all my projects. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned being made fun of because of that. And I think the main thing that people wanted to make fun of you, uh, was about was you had this line that was, uh, I do six minutes to not do six minutes. And then I reward myself with six minutes of email. <laughs> and I think that was the specific line that people, people were like, who is this guy? Uh, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I've been thinking about that and I, I guess, yeah, it's, it's almost a kind of like leveraging of, attention uh that naturally is drawn to different things and 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 you've described that as kind of uh one of the things that you like about the way your mind works is that you you have lots of different things you're interested in and you believe that you know kind of the way you like to work is is by bringing uh these these different things together i think that that's quite nicely aligned with that and once you start looking for that i can kind of see that come out in your in your work and everything yeah i think when it comes to, so I'm kind of into the sort of life hacking porn. I, I love the idea of planning work routines and thinking about the best routines for this and that. But the best advice here seems to be know thyself. There are a lot of people who, who really know themselves and they know they do their best work. They have to have a full day in front of them. They have to have eight hours where they do nothing but a single project with no distractions. If you're that way, that's good to know. Most people work well in the morning. If you're like that, it's good to know set up your work in the morning, set up other things in the afternoon. But some people like to work in the evenings and some people like to work in the afternoons. Some people like me are better off in short bursts of work. Some people can't have any distractions. Some people need distractions. So part of it, and, and this is true for a work routine, which is what we're talking about now, but it's, it's probably true for life more generally, which is 
to some extent, you could try to change yourself to your, your, your circumstances. You might have to, you know, if you have to, if you have kids, you might have to wake up early, but often you have the freedom to find out what you are and then optimize your life in that regard. If your very most brilliant times are in the morning, don't spend the morning surfing the web. Save that for a time when it's not your best productive time. If you could only exercise in the evening, set up your exercise schedule for the evening. Don't try to do it in the morning and then quit and think it's not working and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I, I love that. I think um, a couple of principles that I hold dear on that front are, are one, to jealously guard one's time. Uh, and, and in particular, you know, whatever that two or three hour block is, however you're going to work during that time uh, where you're going to do the thing that you care about most. And then also, you know, as a morning person, I think of it as it's a, a kind of biblical concept, the first fruits of my day. And I want to I want to give the first fruits of my day to, to the thing that I care about most. And uh, yeah, I guess maybe, um, you know, before we get into talking about your books, can you maybe say, a little bit about, you know, in terms of productivity, what's, what do you consider meaningful productivity? What does that mean to you? And what are you going to look back on and say, hey, I used my time really well for this versus something that's like, oh, you know, I probably, I, that, that, that doesn't, you know, that, uh, I don't feel as, you know, that, that was as important in the long run. Yeah. You know, I've, I've come to realize that, you know, you and me and other people talk about meaningful productivity because I'm really annoying because we talk as if, the most important things to do are the meaningful ones that have long lasting effects that, <clears throat> sorry about my voice, um, that, that, you know, that, that engage in deep projects and some, and, and, and other things. But a lot of times there's stuff we have to do. I, you know, I got to grade some student papers. I got to write some reference letters. And is that meaningful productivity? No, not in the sense I'm talking about. It's stuff I have to do. It's important but it doesn't contribute to long-term projects of real value. If all of a sudden someone else was able to do it, I'd be happy. Um, but you've got to do those things. So I'm, I sort of want to, maybe I want to chastise my earlier self, which would say, spend the first hour of the day doing meaningful long-term stuff, writing your book, thinking deep thoughts, reading the literature, investing in your intellectual future. Because maybe your life is such that you don't have a full hour to do that. And, uh, but to answer your question, that is what meaningful work is. Meaningful work is the sort of thing that it's, it's not putting band-aids on things. It's not doing what you have to do because it's due tomorrow. It's rather trying to satisfy certain long-term goals. And the worst trouble people get into, and I think academics often get into this, is they keep doing what they have to do. And then before they know it, you know, 40 years have gone by, and then, <laughs> you know, so that's, you, you sometimes have to step back. Oh. And, and, and one thing I realized, and I'm not, I don't know, I'm not going to get personal enough to tell you what I'm giving up, but, but to focus on meaningful work, some things you have to give up. You, you give up um, for an academic, you give up writing grants, you give up advising students, you don't teach as well. You don't uh, do as much service duty. You don't exercise as much. You don't, you don't spend enough time with your kids. You do, something got to go. And, and so, so I, and I've, I've made certain choices. I'm kind of proud of my choices. I, I don't mind my choices, but, but um, you know, I'm never going to be chair of my department, for instance. Too much work. 
Well, Paul, my condolences on that front. Um, but no, I think the I, I there's something I love in there, which is that there's there's something uh, that requires sacrifice in doing it. I think that's a really good answer to it. Is that it's not just about what you do; it's it's about what you don't do. And I think I'd go even further with with one of the things that you said. And it's like, well, it in fact it's probably not possible to do meaningful work or uh, you know like these these really you know kind of deep deeper work you know. Uh, states for more than, you know, a couple few hours at a time, depending on your personal proclivities. And, you know, if you look at, I don't know, whatever professional athletes, it's not like they're spending all day at like, you know, max. They're like, I'm going to spend 22 hours of my day to make sure those two hours that I have where I'm really expecting a lot for myself are, are, are on there. I think, you know, that, uh, I think, I think there's, there's a, a big principle in there. I think you're right. And that's the, and, and, and there's a big principle there's sort of principle which, which should inform the questions we're asking now, like how do you be most, product, most productive? What's a good work routine? What's meaningful work? And and the question that should inform this is how much of your time should you spend working? How much do you spend your life should you spend doing something meaningful? And you're right, the answer's not all of it. In, in in my book, Sweet Spot, I talk about motivational pluralism, an idea I borrow from a thousand other people. And I take my best quotes from the, the economist Tyler Cowen. He just says, there's all sorts of things people want. A good life involves maximizing many things. And one of them is meaning, you know, make, making sense of things, contributing to a rich world. But then there's being happy. There's, there's pleasure. There's being good. There's transcendence. There's, um, you know, there's satisfaction, which might be different from pleasure and so on. And I think a good life involves maximizing many of those things. And so aspiring to spend every hour possible on writing one's book or getting into shape seems not necessarily the best idea. So when this conversation comes out, uh, it'll be, I believe, it'll be publication day for your book, Psych, um, which is your overview of, of psychology and uh, so, sort of adapted from your intro to psych course. And uh, so, you know, speaking for me personally, uh, I just finished my PhD uh, so I have been studying psychology for a while. Um, and even though I did get a B in intro to psych as an undergraduate, uh, I, I have seen a lot of the stuff that you cover in your book before. Um, but something that I thought was both completely novel and completely brilliant was your theory about how to use the Stroop task to uncover spies. Oh, thank uh, you. Inspired by watching the TV show, The Americans. Can you, can you say a little bit about that, please? Yeah, I'm very pleased about that. That's, that's one of, you should, that's you should my, be proud of that. that. My only contribution to espionage, I, I, I think. Is there um, a journal of like spy psychology? Because I feel like you need to submit that there. That's... I, I, yes, I, that could be, you know, what I'm known for ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the idea of the Stroop task is, and, and this is a task which is about consciousness, and it's about the involuntary nature of consciousness. And um, the task is you read a bunch of, you have to look at a bunch of colors and then just say what color they are. So red, yellow, blue, green, that's fine. Now the colors are in the shape of words. And maybe the red, the, the word, the red in red is the word red. And in blue is the word blue, and in yellow is the word yellow. So you read the colors, you go, red, blue, yellow, that's easy. But now you see where this is going. You have the word uh, uh, red, R-E-D, but it's blue. And remember, your task isn't to do any reading. Your task is to, is to name what the color is. 
you have the word G-R-E-E-N, and it's in yellow. And, and so you're supposed to look at these things and say blue, yellow. But the Stroop effect is, you can tell me if I get this right, by the way, but the Stroop effect is that your knowledge of English makes this hard. There's an involuntary pull to read the word, which interrupts with your color recognition. And this is a demonstration of involuntary power of, um, of, of certain highly habituated trained tasks like learning to read. And my idea was you take a, you find a, people who, who you believe are Russian spies. This is from the, the TV show, The American. They, they deny being Russian. They, we know no Russian at all, they say, in their perfect American accents. You say, uh-huh, okay, fine. And then you set up a bunch of words in front of them, a bunch of color patches, and these are colored versions of Russian words. Now, I don't speak any Russian. So if I was to read them, I'd go boom, 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 red, yellow, green, blue, whatever. But because they're Russian, um, the Russian in the Russian words have our color names in Russian. This should be hard for the Russian speakers. They can't not read the words and it slows them down. And then you look at their slowing down time and then you figure out who the spies are. That's it's that's that's so good. I love that. <laughs> the- the whole book is worth it just for this espionage. Trick. Oh my god! When I saw that, I like I. Oh my god! I thought that was so brilliant. Um, yeah. So that that one that one right there is uh, like you said, the whole book's worth it for that. Um, but I, you know, since you have taught it as a course, and so you have the rare opportunity to kind of workshop your book in front of an audience before writing it. Um, and in particular for students who may not have seen most of this stuff before. I'm curious, do you have any insight into which section or chapter do you think students are most interested in or, or people gravitate towards or, or, or anything along those lines? Yeah. Um, so I, I taught a course in intro psych originally at University of Arizona. And then I, I moved to Yale and taught at Yale. I'm going to be teaching at University of Toronto the first time next semester in a couple of weeks. And I've taught it in other places like Beijing University, Korea University, University of British Columbia. I've taught it online for about um, a million people. I've seen it have taken the course so far. And so this is the sort of background I use to write my book. And yeah, I've used student feedback and as to what parts they like and what parts they don't like um, to, to frame the book. Um, I'll say a couple of things. One thing is that you might think that the sexier topics like sex or religion or love or race are the topics that are the most interesting, inherently interesting to students. But this isn't necessarily the case. It's not necessarily the case for two reasons. One is because people bring in, I think, high expectations to something. You know, it's very, it's it's not hard to make a lecture on Skinner really funny. Making a lecture on humor really funny is a little bit harder, actually. And then the second thing is that if it's things that people sort of know about and experience in their everyday life, you've got to work harder to show that psychology has much to add. Um, So sometimes I find that the best lectures, the most interesting lectures, are the kind of bread and butter lectures where you talk about the visual system. Are you talking about the workings of short-term memory or different theories of mental illness or behavioral genetics 
something like that. Um, I'll also say something else, which is this book, when I wrote it, it was a COVID project. And, and honestly, I started in COVID. I want to write a book. And I said, you know, hey, I got my lecture notes for this book. They were online notes. Put them together, make a little book. I call it a little book of intro psych or something. Um, do it in like six months. And, and then kaboom, I'd have a book out, could afford to renovate my house, be great. Um, it took me two years. And the book turned out to be 140,000 words, which is about 50% longer than any other book I wrote, because I couldn't write these things small. I kept adding and adding and adding and adding. And it's not a big book by anybody's standards. But there's so much to say. You know, I could have just, I, I stopped at kind of an arbitrary point. I could have kept on going for every part and said more and more and more. There's so much to say. And this is kind of the fun of a book like this. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I love about the way that you've approached this, so the first section of it, let's say, is sort of takes a, a historical perspective. And you dedicate a section to both Freud and to Skinner and the behaviorists. Um, but more importantly than just having those sections for me is that you're genuinely sympathetic to both of those schools of thought, despite the fact that they both proposed theories that were at times, uh, shall we say, overenthusiastic. Um, and I think it's really a mistake not to look at what they got right and, and just sort of brush it off as like, well, yeah, this is kind of nuts. So, um, because there's such important parts of the story of, of psychology in the 20th, uh, 20th century. So I want to, I want to talk about Freud specifically for a minute. Um, and many people will have this kind of vague sense that, that Freud introduced or, you know, elaborated on the concept of the unconscious in the way that we sort of think of it now. So can you you can kind of can you go go into that and and maybe uh, describe describe what Freud did and maybe in terms of of what you think people kind of mistake or or misunderstand or don't know about about what he did? Yeah, so so I think if you ask people, name a psychologist, <laughs> they'd name Jordan Peterson. But <laughs> after that, they would name Sigmund Freud. They would name Sigmund Freud, the most popular psychologist yeah. ever. Yeah, and um. And he is, within the field, reviled. You know, people, people come to a university like University of Toronto or Yale University. Where's my course on Freud? I want to learn about Freud. And they, there's nothing like that. The, Freud is studying universities, but he's in the English department. He's in the humanities, maybe even philosophy. But, but he is considered an embarrassment in psychology. And he's considered an embarrassment in psychology in large part because just about everything he said is insane. It's not even like false. It's crazy. Ideas like, like um, the enormous formative power on every child's life of walking in on his parents when he sees them having sex. That's, you know, that's just a big thing for Freud. Penis envy. Um, uh, the, the, the power of dreams to reveal the secrets of the mind incredible unconscious dynamics where, where the secrets of life spill away. Amazing, fantastical stories about various mental illnesses. So, you know, I think that, that a lot of psychologists shy away from him because he got so many things wrong. And, but the reason why I devote a chapter to him early on in my book is, is there's, there's two reasons. One is, 
he's a, a figure of, of immense importance in, in, in everyday life. He, you can't understand a lot of what people say or what they think about the mind um, if you don't know Freud. So it's like an atheist. Even an atheist has to read the Bible. An atheist has to know what people are talking about when they, when, when they, when they make biblical references. And even if you don't if you think Freud is nonsense, uh, other people believe in him. They talk about people being repressed. They talk about anal personalities. They talk about the superego. And it's worth knowing what they mean. So you might want to know Freud just for his influences. But I think it's more than that. I think Freud got some important things wrong, got everything unimportant, everything specific wrong. Sorry. I think Freud got some important things right. Um, there, a Freudian slip, my first one. Um, <laughs> so, so, and what he got right was the importance of the unconscious. The idea that so much of our beliefs and desires, so much of what motivates us to do what we do, go under the surface. And this insight gets rediscovered again and again. It gets rediscovered by neuroscientists who talk about confabulation, where you know where you 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 jolt a patient in in their head, and then they laugh because you jolted them. You say, "Why are you laughing?" And they said, "Because you said something funny." They make up a story to explain their emotion, their notion, in a sort of after the fact way. Moral psychologists talk about like a, a John Haidt talk about. Moral dumbfounding, where you where you have a moral gut, moral feeling. You don't know where it came from, so you tell a story about why. Social psychologists are all about the unconscious. Now, all of that is indebted to Freud. Freud was the one who, who brought the unconscious to the field's consciousness. And, and what he had to say about it a lot was wrong. But the idea of an unconscious and an unconscious dynamics, I think, is important. And, and still not fully recognized in a lot of our field. So that's one reason why Freud is worth reading and worth thinking about. There are others. I think um, here's a small one, but maybe an important one. Um, I think Freud was good on sex in a way because he had very odd views about sex and views that were, that would be because they're like shockingly bigoted now about women and about gay people. But at the same time, by making clear how, there's no better word for this, how perverted most sexual desire is. He legitimized the sexual lives of just about everybody. If if everybody's a pervert, nobody's a pervert. And so the, the, the sort of Victorian idea that there are these people who live these totally sexually pure, decent, chaste lives set apart against the weirdos around him, Freud shattered. And I think that was a good thing to shatter. There's something that I want to add here because my personal reading of Freud, I think there's actually another aspect of what he contributed that I'd, I'd put right up there with um, you know, his thoughts on the unconscious. Do you mind if I go into that for a second? Um, so, so you know, most of, of that in terms of you know, the unconscious and also the sex stuff is about the content of, of psychology and claims about you know, how the unconscious works and, you know, what it's doing in our mind, just how much, you know, uh, it accounts for in our behavior. And the second contribution that I think he made is not one of content, but one of methodology. Uh, and this is the idea of interpretation. And so basically Freud pioneered, uh, he didn't invent necessarily, it goes back to, you know, his uh, mentor Charcot and, and other people in neurology, but he really brought to the forefront this idea that if you made observations 
about the right kind of behavior, um, you know, a dream, uh, or as we talked about, you know, a slip of the tongue, that sort of thing, then you can essentially read that behavior the same way that you'd read like a novel. And, um, you know, contrast that with, with using scientific experimentation to understand, you know, what something is, what is there. Um, you can use these interpretive methods that, that Freud did to figure out, you know, what it means. And so these, this maps on to kind of what we think of as, you know, the two approaches in C.P. Snow's two cultures, scientist experiments, uh, humanist uh, interpret, that sort of thing. And so I actually think this is very important um, because Freud took this really seriously and in my reading of the history of psychology, one of the great tragedies of 20th century psychology is that no one ever really found a way to make this work in, in a way that we feel is legitimate. So psychology became almost exclusively this experimental science, which is good for rigor. Absolutely. That's, you know, I mean, it, it makes it a science. Um, but I think it, in my view, it dramatically overestimates the scope of what scientific studies can, can give insight to. Contemporary psychology, I think it's fair to say is essentially behaviorism 2.0 where we're, you know, sort of looking what, 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 like what we're doing looks a lot like what the behaviorist did and almost nothing like Freud did. We just try and do it without the sort of, you know, wacko, uh, philosophical badge. But anyway, I, the point of this is that I think one of the main things that, that it, um, um, you know, kind of led to was, was sort of potentially impoverished theories of meaning because that is what interpretation is all about. It's about trying to suss out meaning and scientific experiments can make empirical claims about, um, you know, things related to meaning, but they can't actually search for meaning in themselves. But in, at any rate, this is why Freud is more influential in uh, literature and in anthropology because those are the disciplines that are comfortable uh, using interpretation. And, um, uh, you know, us psych people in psychology departments just sort of sit there and look at Freud and, and roll their eyes, as you say. That's interesting. It, it's, I think what I find interesting, I find what you're saying to be pretty accurate, but what's interesting is that you think it's, it's a, it's a bad thing what happened. So a different way of viewing it is you're exactly right. <clears throat> the interpretive style of Freud went off to the literary scholars and in a different way to journalists. So, you know, journalists, journalists, they're interviewing somebody, they don't, are, are reporting on a scene, and they're trying to explain what happened. And maybe they're trying to explain at some different level, some level of an overt level, maybe really complicated, this is what people are thinking and so on. But there's nothing, there's no experiment. There's no experiment, there's no data in any, in any interesting sense, there's nothing to be replicated. And I think the world, a world without somebody telling me what the White Lotus really meant would be a really impoverished world. And a world without journalists would be a really impoverished world too. But I guess I'm not as convinced as you that psychologists need to employ these tools. I'm not as convinced as you as part of a scientific toolkit. Um, let me let me go into an anecdote then. I don't I'm not I'm not saying that this will convince you, but here is a little bit more context on uh what you know, kind of there's, you know, let me just get into it. But it, you talk in your book about Gordon Alpert and he had this meeting with Freud and, you know, this is tangential, but uh, if you actually dive into Gordon Alpert biographies, it turns out he didn't actually write about that in his journal that he kept, kept very, you know, like assiduously at the time. It was only in retrospect, once it was a great like story to tell at cocktail parties that he really like dove yeah. into. And then, you know, there's this line, I won't, I won't ruin the punchline because you put it in the, the book and everything, but Anyway, um, it, as you know, if, yeah. if, if, if I could say something about memory, I, one of the conclusions about memory is no story is true. 
no good story happened the way somebody reported it. Yeah. Let's go, go on. Cool. I'm glad you put that in there because I, I, uh, the, the nature of stories as I think a, a mechanism that I want to uh, talk to once we, once we kind of work through this. But anyway, um, Gordon Alpert, for me, is this incredible, as for many people, um, uh, is this incredible figure in psychology. But there's this kind of backstory that's not really well known about him. And basically, so he was hugely influenced by Freud. Um, but his brother, Floyd, was also a behaviorist. And in really close with John Watson in the early, you know, uh, to mid to late 1910s. And it was actually Floyd who suggested to Gordon that he do his PhD thesis in group behavior and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it led to this desire in, in Gordon Alpert to, to marry behaviorism and Freudianism. Um, and the closest, uh, and, and like when you look at the way he talked about his own career, so we, we all know him for The Nature of Prejudice, uh, this 1954 book that was really, I mean, uh, you know, led to the founding of, of social psychology and personality psychology in many ways. But toward the end of his career, one of the very last things he published was this book called Letters from Jenny. Uh, and basically there are these personal letters by this woman uh, that, you know, she was just a normal person. And she, it turns out she'd had this correspondence where she details these very intimate aspects of her life in this very revealing way. And he used this for decades as material for his courses. And he would, he would teach off of them and, and you know, he would, he would really try and get at what he often called the core question of, of his career, which was how do you tell the, the story of an individual's life history? How do you get at something that both captures broad psychological phenomena, but also the experience, the idiosyncratic experience of the, 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 uh, the individual, as he called it, you know, marrying the, the nomothetic and the ideographic. But anyway, if you read this book, it's actually really sad because the first half presents the letters and the second half of it presents his interpretation. And it's basically this apology for how unsatisfactory the interpretation is and how despite many years of trying to get it right, he never could really put his finger on what he was trying to do. And so my point in all of this is that I agree with the Gordon Alpert impetus that if we could find a way to convincingly do this, to have the best of both worlds, where you can have the scientific uh, experimental way of getting at knowing about things generally and what things exist, what things are out there and how they work, as well as the interpretive things that really get more at you know um, uh, the experience of, of, of individuals and that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily disagree that uh, psychology should be an experimental uh, science, that should be the core of it, but I really believe in that vision that he painted, uh, that if you can have both of those things, there's so much power in that, and we could, we just haven't been able to, uh, uh, to do that in any, in any substantive way. Yeah, I guess, I, I see what you're saying, I'm, I'm not sure if we entirely agree or entirely disagree, and, and so, you know, um, so here's how I would put it a while ago, I moved to Arizona for my first job and I wanted to know what it was like to live, what it would be like to live in Arizona. So I didn't go and read a lot of social science about life in Arizona. I didn't look at the polls about Arizona. I didn't even look at journalism about Arizona. I read several novels that took place in Arizona, including the one, the wonderful, uh, Tony Hillerman detective novels, um, 
And in fact, before going to living in Boston, I read uh, Robert Parker Spencer novels. I didn't, you know, and before moving to London, I read the tons of London novels trying to, to get a grip. And I feel that these novels tell me a lot more what it's like to be that kind of person than all the psychology research in the world. So, so if that's sort of what you're pushing for, I agree with that. I, I think that, but I just think it's different kinds of things. I think the, the conclusion for that isn't, well, we should subsume the novelist interpretive enterprise and make that part of how psychologists do their business. It's rather there are many different ways of getting access to something. Some are scientific and some are not. I, I I agree with your assessment that we neither fully disagree uh, uh, nor nor agree, and I think there's there's a lot of gray area here, and it's questions about you know what should the enterprise of scientific psychology be like, um, but I I'm not sure that I'm convinced by by that because. You know, you're kind of saying. I mean, like, I think if if we said like, okay, well, look, you've got cognitive psychology, and that looks at things that are like you know mechanisms of mind. Tell me about you know lower level visual perception, and then you've got social psychology, and well, that's you know group interactions that sort of. Thing. And you know, those are two fundamentally different kinds of things. And so I think we just need to say that they're the cognitive psychologists. You can see where I'm going with this, right? Uh, and so. It's not patently clear to me at all that just because uh, interpretation is very clearly not the purview of science, that it's like there's no like room for that uh, sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I get it, uh, uh, you know, why, you know, uh, professors of psychology don't do it. I personally think that we should take it more seriously. And I love what anthropologists have done with it. And I think that's, in my view, anthropology is worse off for not being more like psychology and psychology is worse off for not being more like anthropology. I won't go into it, it uh, any more because we've probably gone uh, uh, more than, but uh, that's, that'll, uh, that, that's kind of my, you know, uh, reading of the situation. Yeah. And I don't want to get fighting over disciplinary <laughs> bounds. I think for a lot of questions, say yeah. an ethnographic approach or an anthropological approach is just a thing. Yeah. And, and I think this could really inform the sort of questions psychologists want to ask. I, I, I worry that if you include that under psychology, sooner or later, everything becomes psychology. And it's some way the field eats up everything. So I am sort of saying, well, this is a case for psychologists benefiting from an anthropologist's tools or even benefiting from a novelist's tools. Um, and that's how I kind of prefer to talk about it. But maybe not much rides on it. If you want to just say, well, why don't we just consider this all psychology? There's a sense in which that could be true. Hey, Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds if you just want to skip through it. If you have not already, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work, and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find, which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me and I really appreciate it, like a lot. But even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing. 
which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. So let's take uh, kind of some of the principles we've been talking about with with meaning and stories and, and Freud and that sort of stuff and examine some of the, um, you know, what psychology does say about that and some of the things that you've covered in both Psych and uh, Sweet Spot, the pleasures of suffering and the search for meaning. Um, so I guess one thing I want to start off with on this front that I'm really curious to hear what you have to say from, from, from this perspective, but like in interviews and in, in, uh, I think even in the, in the books, um, you know, you start off with this, uh, idea that I think a lot of people would endorse that like we humans are storytellers and pretty uncontroversial that we care about stories and these are a fundamental structure for, you know, human life and society and that sort of stuff. But I think what I take issue with is that it gives us a little bit too much credit. We're storytellers, but not necessarily good ones. Uh, everyone can connect with a good story and, uh, uh, you know, all that, but not everyone can, can tell one. And I think this applies to the stories we tell about our, ourselves and our own life as well. Not just, you know, oh, not everyone can write a novel. Uh, but I think, you know, when we, we look at the stories of our own life, we get stuck in the same plot devices. We kind of rely on the same, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, things over and over, over, over and over again, and maybe even suffer from a lack of imagination. So does that, I don't know, does that, uh, kind of square, uh, with, with, I don't know. What do you, uh, do you think I'm thinking about it right there? Or do you think I'm, I'm, I'm missing something? Um, I don't, I don't know what I said about storytelling in the past. So I'll just take it, I'll just take it anew and say, it, it, it's kind of a banal claim that humans are natural storytellers. We live the lives of our stories. The stories tell us what matters and what doesn't and so on. And of course there's a, a, a deep truth to this. Um, everything from a sort of more mundane fact that it's easy to remember things when they're in a story that um, our memories often get transformed into stories into narratives. If, if something significant happened to you and I asked you about it, you'd tell it to me often as a story. It'd have a beginning, a middle and an end that is imposed upon you because you're a good communicator because that's how you hold things in your mind. And I know there are people who say they, they, they have a, their life story, a life narrative, but I often wonder whether that gets really overstated. So first thing, there are a lot of differences that people have in their everyday conscious experience. I've been reading more and more about this. Um, some people have powerful visual imagery. Some people have none. Some people have a voice in their head. Others don't, surprisingly. One other difference is life stories and narratives. I think some people are natural storytellers. And I think this is particularly common in highly literate environments. But I think some people aren't. Um, I forget the philosopher. There was a philosopher. I don't want to guess at his name. But there was a philosopher who wrote an article saying, my life isn't a story. I don't have a story about my life. I don't have a narrative story about my life. It's not a story of redemption. It's not a story of I try, try, then I succeed, or I reach the peak, then I fell. It's not, it's not you know, um, Icarus. It's not Achilles. It's just, I don't have a story. It's one damn thing after another. And I think that sometimes we get the, the narrative 
people are storytellers because we put them in situation and badgered them to tell stories. And then they obligingly do, you know, suppose my day was just, my day was, I did this and I did this. I did the other thing. Then I did one other thing. And then, um, and then my wife says, so how was your day? Well, to be an obliging communicator, a normal person, I got to do better than that. I started off great. And then this, and, and then who would have thought, boom, 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 boom. And you tell a story. But they're the stories that are products of social demands. They're not there to start with. And I wonder all the stuff about stories and narratives is just a little bit overblown. Oh, I don't know how much we want to get into that whole philosophical claim about, uh, oh, my life doesn't have a story, which incidentally you conveyed in the form of a story. Um, yes, uh, because I'm, I'm communicating to you. Uh, but, okay, so setting that completely ridiculous notion. And I, got, uh, I, got into, I got into an argument with somebody and, 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 and she was saying, it is, you, I, I don't like when you use examples. It biases things. Your examples are, from your point of view, it biases it. And then she says, you know, look, here's the problem. And then the next she says, so for example, think about, and, and then I called her on that. And we both felt, look, there, there's no other way, even if it's a bad habit, there's no other way to do it. Um, so uh, yes, there's, there's a, there's a place, there's a direction that I think I want to go with this. And I, and I want to, um, there's two things that I want to like flag as being on the same page about. So one, your claim previously that, uh, basically there are no true stories, any, uh, sorry, like I, 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 I paraphrasing that incorrectly from, uh, pre, uh previous. Let me, no, yes. I, no, let me just make sure it isn't, it isn't from, from. There are true stories and like true stories of things that actually happen. It's not an anti-realist claim. There are no true stories. When you tell me five years ago how somebody did this and you, you know, gave him the talking of his life and boom, 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 that didn't happen. When anybody ever tells me a story that's all clean, particularly one in which they look great in, it never happened. It never happened. I was listening to a podcast before and before we talked and somebody's saying, you know, you're insulting this friend of mine. My friend went to two years of Harvard Law School, aced every class, went to the dean and said, I'm doing so well, I don't want to take any more classes. And the dean said, you don't have to. You do other things. And I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, that didn't happen. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't ace two years. He didn't speak to the dean. The dean didn't tell him. It, something happened, but it was never that clean. Yeah. And so that's what I mean. That's what I mean that there are no true stories. And, and maybe you can also more generally think of that as a principle about data compression. When you take the, the, the facts of like that's right. reality, if you know, we're talking about the, the placement of every atom relevant to, you know, the thing we're saying, okay, well, look, here's the thing that happened. I, I, I said, you know, the thing I asked, you know, the Dean, don't let me have any more classes. That is just, I mean, as, as a matter of fact, that is vastly simplifying so much uh, that it's going to just by nature of that overlook something. I very much agree on that. And I also, and for instance, for instance yeah. when, you, when you look at a, something like the crown or something like that, a, 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 something recounting historical facts, and then you look at an explainer, how what did they get right? Often what they'll say is they switched the order of things. And you think they switched the order of things. Why did they do that? Well, the answer is to make them make sense. 
the real order of things often <laughs> yeah. doesn't make reality's, sense. Reality is not as interesting, it's, not as fun, and not, not, a, not as easy. Or loose ends is messed up and everything. Fiction. Stories, stories fix everything. Yeah, yeah. And they make them so. You're right. They compress them in the right way. They make them entertaining. They make me the hero. You know, it's, it's, it's that sort. Of, in that way, there are no true stories. And uh, and the other thing is that you haven't endorsed this explicitly, but. It's consistent in, in in my understanding of everything you've said, which is that um, stories are always about looking back on something. It's always the purview of the remembered self and not the experiential self. The experiential self is some sort of dopamine maximizer looking to sort of, you know, twist the dials of serotonin levels and, and this and that and feel good in the moment. And the remembered self is the one who is looking back and saying, okay, what happened? What do I think happened? What do I want to have happened? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what would be consistent with, you know, my sort of general principles and theories uh, about the world? And, and that's the one that's telling stories. And so it, storytelling, and I would even go as far as to say the process of meaning making is a retrospective post hoc process. Okay. Um, feel free to revise <laughs> claims on that later on as, as if anything comes up. But here's the thing. Is that, and I, I came to this while I was reading the chapter on meaning in Sweet Spot. Um, I found myself really disagreeing uh, with your, your conclusion based off of those and some, you know, some, some similar principles. And I'll uh, maybe touch on the things that, you know, I was, I was picking up on there and you can, you can elaborate on them and, and anything that I get wrong. But um, basically... You are saying that, like, hey, look, there's here are these two people. Uh, one of them, she spends her time working on important long-term projects, uh, really, you know, uh, close with her family. The other person spends all day smoking weed and, you know, tweeting nonsense. And clearly, the one, the first one, is more meaningful than the second one. And you also state, okay, hey, look, there are these philosophers, and they say, well, oh my gosh, well, you know, in order to find meaning in life, you have to kind of take a step back, you have to meditate, you have to ask yourself, what is the meaning of my life? And you just don't think that like people necessarily spend a bunch of time doing that, but that doesn't mean their lives are meaningless. And so your case, um, in all of that, uh, as I was summarize it is that there is such thing as intrinsically meaningful activities, or at, at the very least there are activities that have uh, differential levels of, of intrinsic meaning. Does that sound like a fair summary of, 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 of your perspective uh, on that front? Uh, and feel free to add anything uh, that you think is especially relevant um, based off of no, that. No, it, it, it does sound fair. Okay. Um, to step back a little bit, what I'm trying to do here is unpack a sort of intuitive notion of meaning that people possess. Cool. So I'm not sure what the, what meaning really is. And I'm not going to ask people. you to define that. I don't want to so, spend talking about – I, I yeah. do not want to spend talk, time talking about the meaning of meaning – uh, we're not going to do that. Thank you for flagging that. I will not ask you that, but, though. But yeah, I think we have a gut sense, and I certainly do, that some lives are more meaningful than others. And a life doesn't get to be meaningful by thinking about a lot. A life gets to be meaningful in other ways. Same for a project or a goal. Here is my um, place where I think my my thinking on it starts to deviate, is that I am not convinced by the claim, uh, that claim about intrinsic meaningfulness of activities. I think that there's no such thing as intrinsically meaningful activities. And I'll start to sketch out why. Um, basically, I think what you are identifying is an empirical fact about 
uh, the sort of way our culture tends to endorse meaningfulness. And so there's an emp- empirical fact about people like you and me uh, and people like us and whatever you know sort of demographic you want to relate that to and say, well, these are the things that we typically look at and endorse as meaningful. And they have to do with our loved ones. They have to do with uh, long-term projects. They have to do with uh, talking to each other for endless hours on podcasts. Uh, and... Uh, we look at that and most people will, will look at that and um, say that that's meaningful. But that's not because those are intrinsically meaningful. It's that those are the kinds of stories, and this goes back to the point of us not being especially good sports storytellers, not being especially imaginative storytellers, that we're given as templates for stories. And it's not because those are intrinsically meaningful. In fact, um, because of the uh, retrospective nature of, of meaning-making, and uh, the fact that it, it sort of comes from contextualizing something in this larger uh, thing, you can construct meaning out of anything. You have this great example of, uh, you know, a hypothetical experience of reaching into the last uh, into the donut box to get the last donut. Okay, that might be a, a nice thing in the moment, but it's not meaningful. I don't know. I mean, that sounds like the kind of thing that on, you know, our TV show White Lotus that we love and, um, you know, all sorts of other stuff, novels, those moments of just like where this very um, kind of banal, almost insipid thing is happening and there's all this psychological work uh, around that that's happening. And so I, I think that in a really important way, Anything that happens in life from the very obviously worthwhile and important um, to the lowest level, you know, reaching into the thing for donut box can be construed as meaningful in a very relevant, very real way. And it's just that we have this sort of relatively small set of culturally constructed, culturally endorsed uh, things, uh, meaning. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I've, I've got another thing that I want to say about that, but that's that's the first thing I'll I'll, I'll put that up there. So, so two things. One is um, it's worthwhile making a distinction between meaningful experiences and meaningful pursuits. So meaningful experiences, some have a lower bar. A meaningful experience can be very brief, can be, uh, can be high intensity, can be something you didn't work for. Um, being present at the birth of your child could be a meaningful experience, even, even, even if you didn't, you were the one that didn't put much physical effort into it. Um, being, uh, being mutilated or being in a serious accident could be meaningful. And so I'm more interested in meaningful pursuits. So your view, as I understand it, is anything could be a meaningful pursuit. It just so happens that society has decided to throw its lens on some, but not others. And say, this is meaningful, but that isn't. This is meaningful, but that isn't. And then that may be right. But then a question I would sort of ask you, so why some and not others? Why is climbing Mount Everest and going to war and raising children meaningful? But, you know, me walking around my desk 10 times not meaningful. I disagree with your claim that most people aren't spending uh, any significant amount of time, you know, sort of looking back and trying to construct an explicit life story. Um, and I, I, I am sympathetic to where that comes from. Like, I don't think all people are like me and potentially you where they're kind of obsessively uh, curating this explicit life story, and in particular in ways that can be written down and expressed for public consumption um, and, and that sort of thing. So I, I like, I'm sympathetic to that. But the thing that makes me question that is that you see all of this stuff from anthropology and sociology in which basically, you know, the, 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 the researcher is going into some, some group, some society that 
superficially differs uh, quite a bit from elite Western, you know, society. And they say, well, look, even though these people are superficially about as different uh, as possible, and even even people in our own society who are very uh, different superficially from, um, you know, whatever, professors and whatever, um, they actually spend a bunch of time constructing these really sophisticated philosophical accounts of their place in the world and, and what it means and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm certainly not an expert on that, that whole literature and that sort of stuff, but it's that kind of thing that makes me wonder, well, actually, you know, uh, like, I guess, you know, just from a motivational point of view, the person you are describing as having meaningful pursuits sounds an awful lot like you and an awful lot like me. And any time where the thing that you are trying to describe that is positively valenced ends up sounding like yourself, I become very skeptical of whether or not that, and I'm not you know, using that to attack your credibility or anything like that. I'm just saying, personally, that's one of the ways that I evaluate a theory is if it paints the person... Um, uh, who's espousing it in a, in a positive light. So those are reasons why I'm skeptical of uh, um, uh, not only the variation in, in, in um, what it's possible to construct meaningful uh, experience from, but also uh, how much time your average non-professor, non-psychology PhD spends doing it, which I think is potentially more than, 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 than you've made it out to be. Well, there's a lot going on here. Um, I mean, to continuing the theme for meaning, I think there's a reason why some things are thought of as meaningful in our society and like having children going to war. I think for one thing, these are often the same things found meaningful in other societies, including pre-literate societies. It's not like this kind of, it's, it, you, the data could prove me wrong, but my understanding is it's not random. It's not going to say, you're not going to go somewhere. Say, this is, this person is, you just ask somebody what's the most meaningful they've ever, thing they've ever done in their life. And they said, I hopped on one foot for five minutes. And he says, wow, that's, that was the most meaningful thing I did too once. That's not going to happen. It's going to be big things. So I think that there's other criteria that it speaks to, to make something meaningful. Um, as for your stuff on stories, I like it a lot, but it seems not, but it, it seems like this is a flat out empirical question. So it seems like I don't no, you're want saying to I can't use interpretive methods to come to conclusions on this, that in fact, I need to run experiments and gather data and, and use empiricism. Is that what you're saying, Paul? I think that's exactly <laughs> right for this because you're making you would a, a say claim. That. About, you would say you're that. making you're making claim about people in general. Yeah. You say that if you go to most eh, most Americans and then you say, you know, we figure out some way to ask it the question, do you have a life story? Not, not can you think of one, but are you walking around here with a story of your life that has certain story-like elements? It has, it has a direction, it has themes, it has plot twists, it has, it has, it has you know, redemption and failure. And, and definitely people like Dan McAdams have, have done these studies and asked people about it, but they're typically interview studies. And I always worry how much when people, people walk into an experiment without one and then walk out with a full one. It's like therapy itself. You know, the therapist after after year 10 says, I have recovered from you, your full dynamic of your life, the story that made you you. And whether it's true or not, what more typically happened was they worked with the client to create it. So here's the experiment. We find a good way of asking people, do you have a life story? You predict that a large proportion of people would say yes. 80%, 90%, nobody says 100%. I predict not as many. I predict 20 to 
Um, I I agree with your characterization of that uh, and and how it pertains to our, our differences of thinking on that. And I agree that that is an empirical um, uh, question and, and a potentially very interesting one. And uh, that that's a very uh, provocative thought of having a um, you know an almost indirect empirical way of measuring that, rather than like oh let's, let's do a semi structured yeah. interview on 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 how you conceptualize your life. But you feel that if you and I went for a walk and we bumped into somebody on the street, filling up their car at a gas station, he said, you know, hey, do, they have a sec. We're doing a study. You know, do you have a story of your life? Not just what happened to you, but like a story like in a novel or a movie where you're the main character that you could tell us now. You, do you think most people say? Of course. Well, so there's there's a couple nuances to the claim that I'm making that I want to uh, bring out in this. And I think that's that this one is a good way, way of, of framing one of them. Basically, my thing is not that um, people have that story written down in a you know .txt file. Okay. And and all of that, of course, absolutely. And this goes back to the not being especially good storyteller uh, sort of things. Um, but I think uh, that everyone, I would go so far as to say everyone, has a way of r- reflecting and uh, retrospecting on their, um, uh, uh, on their pursuits and their experience. So I'd say both those things, even by your distinction. And explicitly has a way of um, defending uh, this. And I'm not saying that there are not loopholes out of, you know, out of this, like one philosopher saying, oh, well, I do not have a life story, QED, case closed. Um, But one thing that I'm thinking of in particular is there is this book that I read, um, um, and I'm not sure this is going to completely assuage your, your concerns, but there's this book that I read by a sociologist named Michelle Lamont, and it's called The Dignity of Working Men. She's a wonderful scholar, um, has looked at so much cool stuff. Um, but this book in particular, um, goes to, uh, it's a comparative study of, of American working class men and French working class men and asking them essentially, what do you think is meaningful about your work? If you are a, you know, sanitation worker or whatever, which, I think we would all say is important and a valuable thing in society. And we certainly don't want to live in a place that, that has that, but not necessarily meaningful in the way that you and I think about like, well, our work, uh, we feel. And they have these really good responses. Now, I know your concern mm-hmm. is going to be how much of it is from Michelle Lamont prompting them and then kind of, you know, giving a, a gloss on, on what they're saying and everything. I, I also treat the question of meaning which I'm very into separate from the story question of story, which I think is a bit different. Um, and I think that I kind of collapse those together in a lot of ways, because I think that the, the mechanism of meaning making is at a first approximation, a story and that those things are actually identical in a, in an important way. Uh, and we haven't, that, yeah, that may well be, but, um, I'm very careful in my books to say, I'm not going to ask the question, what's the meaning of a life? I don't think lives have meaning. So mm. I'm talking about meanings in terms of, uh, the meaning of a purposeful activity. So I thought you and I were talking about a different issue, a very, very interesting issue, which is do people sort of have a story of their life? And it seems to me that you went from a very strong and interesting claim, which is, yes, they do. Most people are walking around with it, to a claim which is maybe not boring, but is, is much weaker, which is if you ask people, they could come up with one. And I don't doubt that. People aren't dumb. Uh, 
Um, but I, I, I would say I, I am marshalling that as evidence that I don't think that those were made up as like they, they sat there and thought about like, huh, gosh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is how I conceptualize my work. They, they had those whether or not, um, uh, okay. they were explicitly prone for. So I, I, it is not evidence that conclusively, uh, you know, suggests that the, the stronger claim is true, but it's the kind of thing that I'm coming from having been deeply influenced by and saying, oh, that makes me suspect because I really believe in that, um, uh, uh, like, you know, what, what that research is trying to convey that, 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 um, if, if you followed that further, then you would get to this very uh, much stronger claim. But here's this other thing, which is that you, you, uh, and I'm and I'm happy to go back to the the strong claim, but there's there's this there's a a, a a rhetorical stratagem that you use, which is to juxtapose the you know the 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 allegedly meaningful pursuits with hopping on one foot, going to the donut box, smoking weed, all these canonically uh, unmeaningful things. And there's also what I think is a potentially fairly strong claim that I want to make, which is that all of those things can readily become meaningful. Um, and I kind of alluded to the donut one by saying, well, that could be a huge plot point in a novel uh, or a, um, uh, um, a TV show. A lot of psychological work could be done in that. I won't necessarily go further into that and, you know, like, uh, that sort of thing, but, um, but I don't, I don't actually believe that. I think, I think you could have the reaching for the donut really important. It's the act that destroys the world. It's an act that ends a relationship. It could be a very meaningful experience, but it couldn't be a meaningful pursuit unless you, you changed all sorts of things to say, you know, what do you, what do you do in your life? That's of great importance. I reach into and the donut say, box. And I, I'm going to reach into the donut box. No, no, but really what is it? No, that's it. Well, maybe if the donut was like Thor's hammer and you had to pull it from the donut box and it takes years of hard work, but no, normally, normally, no, some things naturally lend itself to meaning like raising kids and others like the donut box don't. I'm not saying you can't cleverly choose a science fiction story where pulling out the donut requires years of work and has immense social force and great consequences, but then it wouldn't be pulling the donut from the donut box. So I don't deny that there's an empirical fact that the vast majority of people are going to say having children, uh, writing a book, doing all that sort of stuff is meaningful. And at a first approximation, 0% of people are going to cite having reached into okay, the donut good. box, grab that out. Totally on board. And that's um, kind of all I'm saying. <laughs> I, I, and I agree with that. I, you know, I, I do think that's all you're saying. I'm not, uh, I, I actually, uh, and I think the, the thing is, is that um, the imp- the, what's important here that I think I want to go beyond what you're saying and say that there's actually another additional thing that's worth considering here, which you have neither said, uh, neither, you know, uh, been for or against, is that I think the way that we tell the stories of our lives can be, better or worse in a sense can be can be not necessarily less or more accurate but can be more or less useful and so this is something that's come up in my own life recently with uh you know one of my close personal relationships and something you know uh ostensibly very negative uh uh happened to her and one of the things we've been talking about is um how are you going to uh, what is the way you're going to tell the story of how this happened? And I think this is very sympathetic to your your book, The Sweet Spot, uh, about suffering and, and how it can relate to meaning o- overall. Um, how are you going to tell the story of this? And I don't think there's one right answer. I think that there are 
Uh, I don't think there's, uh, as going along with Cowan, I think there's a sort of pluralistic way to evaluate uh, how, how good that story is. But I think we underestimate the extent to which we can alter the stories that we tell about ourselves, the way through which they're flexible, the way that which uh, we can say, um, well, you know, there actually was this turning point and it may not have been reaching into a donut box um, uh, or, you know, or, 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 or whatever, but we can take any superficial content and uh, with the right, you know, uh, you know, techniques. Uh, and I'm not saying that necessarily the space of possibilities is infinite, um, but anything can be used um, to create uh, a more fundamental, uh, fundamentally better story and more constructive one, one that, that has higher utility in your own life and for understanding what you're doing now, have done in the past and try and do in the future. And I think that's a very important uh, aspect that has to do with the way we construct meaning via stories and all of that sort of stuff, which may not necessarily be the core of the studies that you're citing, but it's nonetheless uh, very important for the psychological understanding of, of the way mean, meaning works. Does that make any sense? It's interesting. I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, in some way, this is kind of what a lot of my books have been about. This, this insight by Shakespeare, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Mm. That you could, you could take an experience and construe it in different ways. Um, and so I, I like the idea. And I think the stories one tells about an event capture later how you process it, how you remember it, what you take from it, and so on. But my book, Sweet Spots, about chosen suffering. And I say chosen suffering is great. It's part of meaningful pursuit. It's part of pleasure. It's part of all sorts of things. But I'm very careful to talk about unchosen suffering and say unchosen suffering is a different animal. Your house burns down, your child dies, you get a terrible illness, you get assaulted. That's just bad stuff that happens to you. And Someone, and I'm not, I don't want to put you in this, in this role, but someone, someone might say, look, you have power of how to construe it. And you could construe this event that would otherwise be terrible as an opportunity for growth, for transcendence. And there's a language called post-traumatic growth, where, where these good things transform into a story of redemption, of recovery, of you end up better than before. And I would be crazy to doubt that that would ever happen. But I don't think you should expect it to happen. And I think an ideology, and this is a separate issue, it's a moral question, not a psychological, an ideology that says, you know, oh, your kid died. Let's get ourselves, let's, let's learn to <laughs> let's, turn this let's into workshop a good event. Let's workshop the story. Let's workshop let's work the story. <laughs> I, there was a new, I, this, I'm not getting this exactly right, but there's a New York Times article that a little while ago, which was something that affected some already. Something terrible just happened to me. And, but strangely, I'm not growing. Well, <laughs> most, most, you should be relieved. Oh. You're not destroyed. Most, it, I say a lot of unintuitive things in my, in my books, but here I have something very intuitive and obvious to say, which is bad stuff is often just bad stuff and it's bad for you. <laughs> best not to get into that car accident, best not to get cancer. Yeah. And, and I think I'm not the person, I'm not going to tell cancer victims what to do. So if they want to try to transform their cancer into a good story, all the more power to them. But I would also never tell somebody like, if there's I'm glad stories, you went I got, that. I got cancer and that sucked. And, and I got better, but I lost a year of my life and I've still have, so I have health problems and cost me a lot of money. What, what a bad thing to happen to me. Yeah. That's a pretty realistic story you got there. Do you disagree with any of that? No, not, 
uh, not right off the bat. Um, I, uh, I think people, uh, have a, a right to their, to telling the story that the way they, they want to, which I think is, is in line with what you're saying about the, the cancer survivor. Um, and I don't, uh, you know, have any significant, uh, disputes with that. I do think that I would still say we underestimate our ability to rewrite those stories and the power of rewriting those stories. And so I wouldn't say that's, you know, my first thing that I'm going to, uh, you know, reply tweet to the cancer survivor who's saying, Hey, I survived cancer and it fucking sucked. That's my story. I'm not, you know, that's not, that's, that's, that's not the context. I'm going to bust out this insight, but, um, I do maintain that, um, uh, I think, uh, the mechanism of meaning making is very important because it opens up um, the space of possibilities of how we can tell a story, how uh, flexible uh, uh, those are, and, and and what that can do for us. Um, so, uh, yeah. so my my answer to you and to this is the same one I gave to you a little bit before, which is maybe you're right. This seems like an empirical question. And it, and it and it's an important empirical question. There's data on it, but and and I think it's a, it's a there's a little bit of woo about psychology that blocks us from seeing it this way. If 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 I told you about somebody who um, who broke his arm, and then we were speculating as to whether arm is going to be stronger than it would be six months later, or just go back to the same, or always be infirm, we'd probably both shrug and say, huh, I wonder what happens when these things happen. I bet there's a study. I wonder what the doctors say. But it's not a matter of opinion. I I would very much agree that there is an empirical question here. Um, in my uh, personal uh, worldview and, and seeing things, I think there's also questions here that are not necessarily empirical. Um, and uh, that's, and I think you wouldn't nece- you wouldn't necessarily disagree with this. You just say, well, psychologists do the empirical thing. Your novelist buddies can go do the, you know, the the non empirical thing. Um, and no, um, I would, but I would say there's two different questions. The question of what happens to a particular individual could be a novelist question, a journalist question, and it'd just be, be fascinating to know what happens and how that works. Uh, one second. There, um, but. The question of whether or not having a child dies, what it does for you later on, seems to be the sort of thing that you take a thousand people whose children died and see how they are later on. I will let you have the last word on that. Thank you for indulging me down that rabbit hole. It was really interesting to hear uh, your your elaborations on that. Um, no rabbit hole at all. Really, really good questions. I have two other things that I, I, I want to ask you. And as we come to the, the sort of closing section here, one of them is a little bit more open-ended, one of them is a little bit more specific. Um, but uh, one of the things I found myself thinking about in in the sweet spot in particular, and also just every, like, I feel like I, I, I feel this way whenever I hear you talk and, and um, uh, uh, that, is that there is this focus on valence but not arousal and huh. uh you know i'm not saying this is a heavy criticism i'm just saying this I, when i when you talk i i wonder about this and so that's why i'm asking i just i want to know what you're but basically you know when you talk about spicy food you talk about this as a, a negative experience um that's one of your canonical things that you reach for um as you know an instance of of, of moderate uh chosen suffering 
Alongside taking baths, which, Paul, I'd recommend just turning down the temperature of your bath if this is really such a canonically uh, unpleasant experience for you, but that's a totally different sort of thing. But anyway, the, the point that is that the relevant component of the spicy food, the experience of that, is not positive or negative valence. It's heightened arousal. It's the most intrinsically exciting food that you can eat. And we see this in studies that, that, that show a correlation between eating spicy food and, and risk-taking behavior in life. And so uh, there's this really strong psychology, well-developed empirical uh, uh, you know, field of positive and negative reinforcements and you know, uh, approaching happiness, avoiding pain. But there's really, to my knowledge, no comparable psychology of, of, of excitement. And I'm sure you can point me to papers that, that are contrary to that claim. But my, but my more specific thing is, I, I feel like you talk a lot about uh, valence and some of the things that you end up talking about could benefit from an additional component of uh, just, you know, uh, uh, the arousal thing. What do you make of that? I think that's fine. I, I could, I talk a lot about valence because valence is how we, we set up the puzzle. The puzzle is the puzzle, which occupied me in a sweet spot is why do people like to do things that are unpleasant? I think they're paradox. As asking the question in terms of, of arousal makes no sense. Why do people choose to do things low arousal, high arousal? Well, you know, different reasons. That's not such a good question. But valence poses a puzzle. But you don't think there's interaction now, here where like the, the a lot of the negative things that we like are high arousal and, uh, you know, in order to get that really high, like almost like a loss aversion thing, like losses loom larger. We're more aroused by, by losses, so to speak. Um, I'll, I'll let you finish that. I just wanted to, to... No. So, and there you could go in and say, well... The solutions we should look for are in terms of arousal. But valence and arousal plays different parts. I talk more about valence because the question's framed in terms of valence. You want me to talk about arousal because you see arousal as being a good part of the answer. And I, and I, and I respect that. And in some ways, I think it is. In other ways, I think it isn't. But, uh, but, but that's, that's why the focus of valence is. I, I could have subtitled a sweet spot, a question about valence. <laughs> So, but I couldn't have subtitled that question about arousal because nobody would get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so you don't, you don't, uh, you don't see that as you don't share my suspicion that there is a lot more to say about that than we currently do. And maybe this goes more to my claim about we spend way more time talking about things in terms of valence, positive, negative reinforcement, uh, ha- happiness, uh, and, 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 and pain, that sort of stuff, rather than excitement and, and all that sort of stuff in, in the field of psychology. You don't necessarily share that suspicion. No, but I'm not doubting arousal can provide the answer for some of the puzzles of suffering. I don't think it, I don't think it, apply, it, it could uh, explain all of it. I think it can explain some of it. But again, it's the valence question that... Um, that 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 occupies us and has occupied us through history because it's what really matters to us somebody comes up to you and 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 says cody how can i be happy and you say oh why do people always ask about valence why don't you ask me how i can be high aroused no i want to be happy why am i so sad make my sadness go away valence again you complain well because valence is the stuff of life I don't necessarily agree with that. Like, I think that there are tons, I mean, there's a paradox related to the valence question, but there's also one related to the arousal question. Like, why does Travis Pastrana go and like jump over a bunch of like things on his motorbike? Why, you know, uh, like, uh, I think a lot of the things that you do 
um, bring up, like spicy food. Like I don't think sure. that that's a that's a positively or negative of as someone who like can't get enough spicy. There's no level of spicy too much for me. I don't view that as a positively or negative balance experience. I view that as the the only thing that I can do in public where I'm putting something in my mouth and getting that level of arousal out of it. Um, but. But again, and this is going to be totally reasonable, you're proposing arousal as the answer to the question posed by Valence. As you full know, I'm not a happiness guy, but people are really interested in happiness, maybe more than anything else in the world. And I think that's just a Valence question. And again, I'm not denying that maybe more of the answer comes from arousal than we might think. But I'm trying to answer your question. Why do people care about valence? Because valence is a fancy word for happy versus sad. And if I made a list of 100 questions in front of my psych book, and I said, which one do you want to be answered? Number one will be, how could I be more happy? And number two would be, how could I be less sad? And number one bazillion would be, how do I generate high arousal (laughs) situations? (laughs) Oh, Paul, uh, I'll let you have the last word on that. Uh, thank you for your perspective. Final question is, what are, what are three books that have most influenced the way you think? So two of the books I actually talk about at the beginning of Sweet Spot, and, 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 and it's sometimes, you know, sometimes there's sort of pressure to make up books that fit the theme of what you're writing about to make a good answer, but these are real. I read um, Flow by Csikszent Mihai, I think when I was in my 30s, and it talked about... Um, the satisfaction you have from being engaged in activities. And I read and it described lives of people in flow, jazz musicians, rock climbers, and so on. And it made me want to live a life of flow. And I have not lived a life of flow, but I've lived a life of more flow than I would have had if I hadn't had that book. Um, flow and then, six minutes at a time, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You don't have too much flow. Um and then um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. It's a really moving book for me. Is is his Holocaust uh, narrative about what it took to survive in the camps. And and there, by the way, just to, to give a concession to you, there's, not, there's no empirical studies here. This was just, just his observations, his introspective analysis of what it was like to be himself, his interpretation of lives of others. But I think there's something of real, real, real value there. And I didn't know what to do with the third book. I read a lot of novels. And sometimes, I, sometimes, like after I read a novel, I live in the world, in, in, in the world of the novel for a while. Um, I think the novels that affected me the most when I was a kid are the kind of novels that kids tend to read. I read a lot of science fiction as a teenager. Um, ben Bova and Isaac Asimov and Robert A. Heinlein and, and that sort of thing, where which involved, you know, scientists and engineers and explorers going out into space. And, and um, I think to some extent that sort of thing has shaped my moral view so that, you know, no matter what he does, I'll always retain a soft spot for Elon Musk, you know, for wanting to, for wanting to fly us to the moon and, and stuff like that, that, that I always have, I, I have this outside respect for scientists, for, for, for courageous people. And, uh, and, and and so these books have shaped me in that way. Uh, those are great uh, choices, Paul. Uh, before we end, uh, have you ever heard of Project Hail Mary by um, Andy Weir? I enjoyed that book a lot. Oh my god, because that, that that's uh, space and bravery for me. That one, that one, that one comes along. But uh, and an yeah. insane ending. Oh I'm not going to spoil god. it. But an insane, an insane ending. like end of chapter one. Like uh, 
Um, but yeah. anyway, um, like literally every chapter is like an oh my yeah. gosh moment. Um, yeah. Paul, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks for coming on the show. Tons of fun. Happy back. That was my conversation with Paul Bloom. Thanks for listening. So this is just me here. I'm not reading from a script or anything, but I want to share something that I've just sort of been playing with recently that I've really found to be an improvement. And actually at the top of this show even, and sort of as I've advertised, you know, what I'm trying to do in Meaning Lab and and, and sort of what my protocol is, I claim to put out a weekly podcast and a weekly essay. And, you know, for uh, a while after the launch of Meaning Lab, that was true. I was hitting that, and I was pretty happy with the results there. But recently, I've been rethinking that. And what I've been sort of coming to is that I don't want to put out a podcast and an essay, especially both those within a given week, if that is going to shape the kinds of podcasts and essays I'm going to do. What I mean by that is I would rather take the time that it takes to do a show or an essay well and not force myself to publish it at this fairly fast clip and have the quality of what I'm putting out reflect what I want to do and the level that I want to attain rather than just this desire to put stuff out there at a rate that would keep me, so to speak, relevant in people's email inboxes and on their Spotify and iTunes feeds. And so I'm in the in several different kinds of transitions right now, which perhaps I'll outline later on. But if you've listened this far into the podcast conversation and are listening to this now, thank you so much for listening. And I really do want to make these podcasts and what I write on the Substack really a high level of quality rather than this frequent mad dash of getting everything out there. There's just so much content out there in the world now. And I want what I put out to, it doesn't have to be a slam dunk every time because I believe that there is a large amount of room for exploration, but I really do want to be striving for putting out the best of what I can for each piece that I'm doing. And so that is a change that I've been going through. I just wanted to share that. Thank you for listening to this episode and to the Meaning Lab podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. Please rate the show five stars on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of the Meaning Lab podcast. Thank you.